We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hi, this is Cheryl Broderson. I'm Robin jones and We're so glad you're with us today. Aren't we, though? And it's another episode of... Women Worth Knowing. Cheryl? Yes. I have heard that you found somebody you're once again enamored with. This seems to happen over and over. It it does. Who you found. Don't you think it's like the godliness, um, the faith? I always think of David, how um, Jonathan and he just became such quick, fast friends because of the mutual faith. Yes. That they had in God. And I think that we resonate with these Mm -hmm. women because of their dedication and love uh, for God and sacrifice. And that's what you're going to get this morning. So this is Ruthie Burt Cornwell. And her book is called Chosen Before Birth, the missionary biography of Ruthie Burt Cornwell. So she wrote this in her uh, her biography somewhere in her 80s. So that's kind of sweet. Yes. So she was born on April 21st, 1934 to Harry John and Bessie Louise Morrow. And they lived on a 48-acre farm in northwestern Pennsylvania near Route 5, just five miles outside of the town of Cochranton. We'll probably hear from someone who says, I live three miles from there. Exactly, exactly. And I figured somebody's going to recognize Route 5 that runs through (laughs) Pennsylvania. But the interesting thing um, about Ruthie is that it was during the time of the Depression, so though they lived on this huge farm, the farm could not support um, Ruthie's family. So she had three older brothers, Carl, Ed, John, and one older sister named Martha. And so her mom and dad both worked really, really hard on the farm. In those days, you know, it was all hands on deck. Oh, yeah. So all the children um, learned farming, and they were all uh, working the crops and the animals with the father and the mom. But at the same time, because her father could not earn enough money as a farmer, he was also a blacksmith. And so people would bring like, you know, their implements to him and he would repair them. He would shoe horses. So he was the local blacksmith. And because he was a blacksmith and because of the farm, they were able to um, make it through the Depression. But Ruthie said she never, ever knew there was a Depression. Because her parents never allowed her to feel it. But they would take some of the extra produce from the farm and they would take it to certain families um, that lived nearby. So, you know, she knew that they were generous, but she had no idea that they were living on these rations. When her mom was pregnant with her, she took this really, really bad fall off their porch at their house. And she thought she lost the child. That's how bad the fall Mm. was. And she was even hospitalized for a little while. And when she finally gave birth, Ruthie was born with a blood clot that covered her entire face. Oh, my. Mm -hmm. And had to to be removed. Um, Her mother told her from then on, God must have great purposes for you because you're a miracle. So imagine all your life being told you're a miracle. God wanted you so desperately on this earth. He saved you. He protected you. And you're a miracle. It did something to Bessie. She she felt um, beloved. 
beloved and wanted by God all her life. It's really kind of beautiful, isn't it? It really, I mean, it really how many is. children grow up hearing so many other messages? Right. But just that constant affirmation that God loves you and has a plan for you is it, life-changing. It, it was so, so beautiful. So Ruthie's dad was over six feet tall, and her mom was just a little bit over four feet tall. And Ruthie oh. was somewhere in the middle of that. So she went to a one-room schoolhouse and had the same teacher all the way from kindergarten to eighth grade. Same teacher, this schoolhouse. Now, when um, Ruthie was nine, her parents bought the Fisher Memorial Works, a business that had been owned by Ruthie's grandparents on her mom's side in the town of East Springfield, Pennsylvania, near Lake Erie. So they moved off the farm to an old 14-room house that had once been a boarding house. But not only that, it had once been part of the Freedom Train. Really? So it had all these little alcoves and cubbies where they had hidden runaway slaves from the authorities until they could get them to Canada. And so she and her brothers and sister would have so much fun finding the cubbies and hiding in the cubbies When Ruthie was 11, um, oh, not only that, at that house, it was the first time that Ruthie lived in a house with electricity. Imagine. Imagine. Yes, this is 1943. Lived in the first house with electricity and a phone. And she said it was one of those phones that you had to crank the side. And everybody could hear. And everybody could hear. That's right. (laughs) Uh, but they were so excited. They, that was such a novelty for them, especially the electricity and um, the running water. Oh, yes. So when Ruthie was 11, um, a representative from the Gideon Society came to her school and explained what the Gideon Society did and what their mission was. And he handed out a New Testament to every child in that class. Oh, I love that. My dad was a Gideon, and for years and years and years, he would distribute New Testaments or um, place Bibles in the hotels. And it was such a ministry of love for all the Gideons that he worked with, because you never knew where those Bibles were going to end up and who was going to read them. And And how many people have been saved because of a Gideon Bible. And that that Ruthie got one is pretty great. And not only that, she treasured that Bible. Oh, yeah. That was her greatest treasure. And one night after reading it, when she was 13 years old, reading her Gideon Bible, she got down on her knees and asked Jesus into her heart. (laughs) And Ruthie had a hunger for God's word. Um, So she started going to Sunday school, which was not a practice of her parents, you know, to, to regularly attend church. But it became Ruthie's regular practice. And going to church services, she joined the youth group meetings, um, and she especially loved the times when the missionaries would come and share their stories. So she worked while she was in high school, and this is going to become um, a very important factor. So Ruthie knew how to work a farm. Uh, she mm-hmm. knew how to tend and take care of animals because of the way she grew up. She knew how to, to plant and harvest, and uh, she also painted houses, cleaned houses, and even picked potatoes and vegetables and fruit whenever the season was right to make extra money because the family did not have any extra money at 
all. Then when she was 15, she began to take on a variety of sewing jobs, even making um, bride dresses and bridesmaids dresses. Uh, she became just this expert seamstress when she's just 15 years old. Wow, nothing's wasted. You know, Nothing. These things that seem so common and everyday, picking potatoes, but... I'm sure we're going to hear how God used Oh, that. yes, we are. <laughs> so by the time she was 16, she was sure, 16 years old, she's sure that the Lord was calling her to be a missionary and a missionary to South America, no less. Like she even knew, she knew. like, I'm going to South America mm. and the Lord's calling me to be a missionary. So one day her pastor, whose name was Augustine, which is a Great name for a pastor. <laughs> yes. He preached on missions. And he felt that the Lord had spoken to him that there was someone specifically in their church that was called to go to the mission field and that their church was called to support that person in the mission field. And Ruthie knew it was her. She just knew, this is me. I, I'm the person. She just felt the tug of the Holy Spirit. So then she signed up to go to Mm. Bryan University after high school. Now, remember, her family is poor. They have no money. And so all the money that Ruthie had saved, um, she squirreled away so she could pay her own tuition. Ruthie was the first in her family to go to college. Of all her brothers, of all her sisters, of her parents and her cousins, she's the very first. To get money for school and clothes, Ruthie worked that whole summer at a toy factory, and she learned to work with people, work in assembly line. Um, She learned how to fix things and put things together. Uh, She's learning all sorts of skills. So she's all ready to go to college, but she lacks two things. One of those things is a suitcase to put all of her goods in. (laughs) She has no suitcase. I mean, the family had never traveled. Yeah. yeah. So not one of them owns a suitcase. She doesn't have a suitcase. And she also doesn't have a ride all the way to Tennessee from Pennsylvania, like 600 miles. So she didn't have the money to buy a suitcase. Everything was spent on tuition and her clothes, which she sewed herself. So she prayed. And she prayed, Lord, you know I need a suitcase. And so she was talking to um, a friend who happened to be a male friend who had no way of knowing about her need. And he said to her, Ruthie, I just bought this suitcase and I can't even use it. I don't know what um, possessed me to buy it, but I think you're supposed to have it. I love stories like this. Yes. And she's like, yes, I do. I the need Lord it. provides. Right. Mm. So now it's the it's like the week before college and she's packed her suitcase and her, her father turns to her and he says, Ruthie, how are you going to get down to Tennessee? I can't drive you. You know, you can't afford a train ticket. How are you going to get there? And she's like, I don't know, but I just know the Lord's going to provide a ride. <laughs> As she's saying this, there's a knock on the door and it's this lady. And she said, we've got the car ready. Come get in the car. <laughs> and Ruthie doesn't recognize the lady, but she grabs her suitcase and she climbs in the back seat. And as soon as she climbs in the back seat, she recognizes um, one of her friends from school who's also going to Bryan College. And she said, my mother and I figured you might need a ride. And it's her mother who's the driver in the front <laughs> of seat. So they, wow. she makes it all the way down to um, Bryan College. Um, and now, her, That's in Tennessee, but what That's part, in Tennessee. You know? um, yes, I do. It's in Dayton, Tennessee. Okay. So down to Dayton, Tennessee. So she's, she's down and she attends her first year doing um, 
you know, general ed. But then she applies to a special branch of Bryan University. Uh, that's New Tribes Mission, and now it's called mm-hmm. Ethnos 360. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I had never heard New of Ethnos. Tribes, certainly, but not Ethnos. Yeah. So, so I guess just recently. That's recent. Okay. Mm-hmm. So she studied with New Tribes for the next three years, and part of her schooling was summer summer jungle camps every summer. I remember hearing about those. Yes, and she had to learn to build her own abode, like her own you know, a uh, place where she would live. And they had to do it by foraging. Yes, in this. and this is before they had TV shows about survival. That's right, that's right. <laughs> or YouTube like videos. Yes. Right. <laughs> no, YouTube videos that you can watch and learn how to, you know, what works and what uh, boards. They also um, had to forage for their food for some of the meals and learn how uh, what what vegetation was safe to eat, how to recognize poisonous plants, um, all of that, how to recognize poisonous snakes, because they were living, um, and as we know, Tennessee does have some poisonous snakes. Mm. And when you're living out, you know, um, in a mock jungle, which was really a forest, and you're working with um, the elements, and they're sleeping, and she said this was her favorite time. She absolutely um, adored it, which is so strange for me because I absolutely hate camping. I can have all the, um, you know, little special things for camping, and I still absolutely detest it. Um, I used to go camping, as you did, Robin, with um, the— Yep. With the um, youth groups. The youth groups, yeah. yeah. Mission trips. Yes. We'd be out in the wild. Yeah. But the one that did me in was when we were staying at the Colorado River and there were rattlesnakes that were going under our. uh, Okay, yeah, that would be. Under (laughs) our. And we were up off the ground on these chaise lounges and they were going underneath. And then we couldn't go in the tent because of the scorpions. Oh, yeah, the scorpions. Yeah, and then I, I also camped in Catalina, and again, it was the scorpions and the wild boars running through. Yes, I remember camping Catalina, wild boars. Yeah. Wild boars. And but here's Ruthie. Good. Here's Bring Ruthie. It. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this um, is what I made and for. And learning to um, you know, purify your water, just learning all yeah. those things that are so um, essential. So while she's learning about nature and bugs and plants and how to survive in the wild— this this man joins them, and he's not young like the rest of the boys. Ruthie's, you know, in her just almost 20, right? So she's in her, you know, 18, 19, you know, 20. And this man named George Burt, who's already in his 40s, early 40s, he joins, and he's from London, and he's enrolled with new tribes. And he was a cockney, which meant that he was born within the bow belts or the Bow Bells, which means one mile radius of central London and an earshot oh, of St. Mary's yep. LeBow's Bells or yep. LeBow's Bells. Yep. So um, George was born in 1914, so he's 20 years older than Ruthie, who was born in 1934. And he worked for a time as an assistant to a gentleman in the House of Parliament. But then World War II hit. And he entered the army when he was 26, and he served for six years. The first three years, he was an attendant to an officer, but he was one of the first to be trained and volunteer as a paratrooper, which is just one of the first. So he was assigned to North Africa, and he was part of a regiment of 80 men who were dropped into a vineyard in North Africa. And they were shot out mercilessly by the Germans. Mm. And he received shrapnel in his back and in his leg. 
but only George and one other man survived the drop. Wow. 78 of his comrades, of his mm. men that he had trained mm. with, died. They were immediately captured and taken prisoner by the enemy. And George was kept prisoner in Italy and then transferred to Germany, where he suffered um, quite a bit in the prison camp, regularly beaten up, starved. Um, the atrocities that happened to George were just incredible. So the camp is also infested with fleas. And oh, boy. that was something that he just came to just hate. And he was constantly hungry, beaten, uh, and he had to watch as fellow soldiers died all around him. So surviving the parachute drop, then surviving this camp is just amazing. He didn't even know when the war was over. The only really? um, way they realized it is that the German soldiers abandoned their camp and they're like, they're all gone. And so they broke into the kitchen and began to eat and pass out um, rations uh, to everybody, the other prisoners. After the war, he went home to find that his home had been bombed during one of the blitzes, that his mother had been killed, his father had been blinded, and um, his brother had died in fighting in North Africa. So he has a sister, and he has a blind father. And he is left with not only post-traumatic, what we would call now post-traumatic right. syndrome, right. but with such bitterness and anger mm -hmm. with no outlet. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't know what to do with his anger, but he knows he can't live with this anger. He knows it's eating him up. He knows it's killing him, but he doesn't know what to do. So he starts visiting churches all over London. And during this time, he meets a police officer. And we're not told how he met that police officer. <laughs> I, I have my um, suspicions. But the police officer's name, and talk about an apt name. It is Officer Good. <laughs> Isn't that like just the best name? Yes. And he's part of the Latimer Youth Movement. So some people who are listening to this will remember the name Latimer Latimer and Ridley were bishops who were executed in Oxford uh, for um, believing in the gospel. Right, and, right, right. Mm -hmm. So he's part of this Latimer Society, which reached out to the youth. Oh, and so he's interested in troubled youth. Mm -hmm. And he shares the Lord with with George, and George receives the Lord. Mm -hmm. And then Mr. Good takes George to church, and George begins to grow in his faith um, in Jesus. And at that time, he heard about New Tribe's mission work, and he signed up and decided to go train in the USA. And that's how he ended up at the jungle camp where Ruthie was. So from the moment Ruthie saw George and heard his story, she felt, what should we say, butterflies mm -hmm. in her heart, in her stomach. She was just um, an admirer of George, but she said so were most of the women. You know, he had this English accent. Oh, yeah. Larger than life. Right. All these experiences. Exactly. And he loved to work with children. Any opportunity Aww. to work with children or teach children mm -hmm. and he had a natural gift of discipleship 
and sharing the gospel. He was just such a soul winner, but it came from his own testimony of desperately needing Jesus and receiving Jesus. So during this time where George is at school, and I'll mention this, George never got his driver's license. Um, Probably half the population of London do not ever get their driver's license. And he was one of those who just never did. Uh, Cars were scarce. They were scarcity. In London, everything's walkable. And so he had never learned to drive. So he's being driven by one of the students um, during the school term. And the student hits a deer in the snow. And George is thrown. Oh, yikes. Um, thrown from the dry, from the passenger side door. He's thrown 25 feet or so. And he lands in the snow. And he breaks his leg. And so... Um, Ruthie and the girls making meals <laughs> and they start bringing him food and just visiting yes, poor George yes. who can't move with a broken leg. Right. So at the same time, Ruthie is caring for an older woman and George would stop by on his crutches to visit, which she really, really liked. But she noticed that the elbows on his sweater were worn thin and she volunteered to fix them. And the other girls teased her that she was knitting for Britain. <laughs> So Ruthie was surprised one day after class when George asked if he could talk to her. And as they were talking and walking along the campus, he turned to her and said, Ruthie, will you marry me? Wow. No courting. Wow. No dating. I pick you. Yes. No even inkling that George was interested in her. And all of a sudden he says, Ruthie, will you marry me? And she was surprised by her answer. Because she was already so desperately in love with him. But she said, could I have a few days to pray about it? Did she? She did. And she said, even, you know, when she's in her 80s and she's remembering that, she's like, I can't believe I put him off. I was so wild about him. It must have been the Lord. Because everything in me wanted to say, when? You know, let's <laughs> let's do this. So after a few days, she told him her answer. And guess what it was? A resounding Yes. George was 40 and Ruthie was only 20. So here they are. They're engaged. Everything's going. They're in their their last year. And George begins to suffer from rheumatoid arthritis, Mm. probably from his experience in the prison camp. Everything. Mm -hmm. And he was bedridden for over a month. So the wedding kept being postponed and being postponed. And here she is waiting for George to get better before they can get married. So finally, George was better. The day came. He borrowed a suit. And Ruthie, who was this incredible seamstress who made dresses for every bride, practically in East Spring, you know, uh, Mm filled where she lived, borrowed a wedding gown. She did. She borrowed one so she could be married on October 24th, 1955. So at this point, she's 21. After getting married, Ruthie and George started their language studies. And during this time, Ruthie became pregnant and gave birth to their first child, a girl, Louise, born July 31st, 1956. Now, this is going to be their only child that's born in the United States. So, um, Ruthie, um, at this point, George encouraged her to apply for British citizenship. Uh, So they'd have dual citizenship so they could go to Britain and back. And he thought it might help with their travel. That they'd have 
um, passports from the same yeah. country. Yeah. So she applies, and they, um, in the meantime, they're assigned by new uh, missions to go to Bolivia. But before they go to Bolivia, um, George really wants to take one last trip to see his father, his sister, um, and introduce them to his wife, Ruthie. Also to introduce Ruthie to Officer Good and to his church oh. and for them to see his, yes. his daughter. So they take a ship out of New York Harbor and at the end of November in 1957. And they spend two months in England and they share in different churches about their plans to minister in Bolivia. From there, they um, set off from England to South America. So they don't go back to um the USA, and then go. They go straight to South America. Now, the mission support the new tribes could only offer them one hundred and fifty dollars a week, and that included their support from um, Ruthie's church. But they trusted God to meet all their needs. And I think about how she knew faith because she grew up on a farm uh, where her parents couldn't afford to even feed their own family. And in the Depression. And it prepared her for what um, my friend um, Nancy calls financial faith. Oh, that's good. Financial faith. So she wasn't worried (laughs) about the money at all. So they sailed out of Southampton, England to Antofagasta. And um, then they had a two-day train trip. Um, This is all in Bolivia. Um, then a week in a place called, if I mess this up, I'm sorry, Cachabamba, Cachabamba, where they had we'll to fill out paperwork and get permission to be mm-hmm. missionaries in Bolivia. After um, which they had a seven hour bus trip to Tambo where they would actually serve. Um, well, when they arrived in Antofagasta, they stayed at the Salvation Army till they could catch, catch their train to Cochabamba. Uh, Cochabamba, Bolivia. The train only went once a week, but Antofagasta was dry and the whole city was infested with fleas. They woke up looking like they all three had the measles. And this gave George such severe flashbacks of his time in a German prison that he wanted to quit the mission and just go back to the States or go to England. He was he was done before they had arrived yeah. at their destination. But Ruthie was full of faith. And she said, George, are you going to let the devil thwart us from the mission field just because of little fleas? I think not. And he said, Ruthie, it's one thing for me to get flea bites or even you, but to see my daughter covered in flea bites, that's what's really hard for me. So they pray. Doesn't the flea bite situation remind you of Corrie Boone? Yes. She, yes. Her sister Bessie yes. in the concentration camps. Yes. And they were being mindful to thank God for everything. And they began to thank God for the fleas that just infested their bunks. And because of the fleas, the guards would not come in. That's right. And they were able to hold a Bible study. That's right. And so they thanked God that they could have this chance to. Yes. Not be, but Ruthie said just walking in Antofagasta that she would look down, it would look like she was wearing black socks. Oh, now now that's fleas. Yes, and I I know what this is like because Brian Mm. went to a place in Brazil called uh, Campo 
um, oh, Campo, I can't remember the, uh, Morales, uh, Campo something. But he goes to this place and he said it was the same experience. He looked down and his legs looked like he was wearing black socks. That's how thick the fleas were on on him. So anyway, they're, they um, are able then to, um, they have to take the um, train and the train is cramped. It's a two-day trip and it's absolutely packed uh, with all sorts of smells and all uh, the smells even of new foods and of you know bodies cramped together but she loves it she's staring out the window and watching the terrain change as they climb high high into the mountains because Kachamba is 8392 feet above sea mm. level so there's more to talk about when they reach Kachamba and before they get to their first assignment. But I think we're running out of time. A two-parter. It's going to be two or maybe three because okay. there's exciting stuff ahead for Ruthie. And you're going to fall more and more in love with her. You already love her because she's a farm girl who gets a Gideon Bible and responds to Jesus and then already feels the tug on her heart uh, to be a missionary that, you know, she's already living by faith, whether it's her, you know, her suitcase or her ride up to, um, uh, down to her college and, and then her willingness to work hard to sacrifice uh, her love for George. And then she's got all these skills. Let's remember, she can farm, she can knit, she can build her own abode, she can sew, um, she can take care of animals. That's right. This this is prepared. This woman is prepared. And I think about, um, there's a scripture about, um, I think it's Jehoshaphat, and it said that his ways please the Lord because mm. he's determined in his heart to seek the Lord. Yes. And I think you've got Ruthie here who once she gets the call of God, she determines to prepare for that call. And I but love that. I do too. And because of that sweet affirmation that the Lord gave her at a young age, and she just knew, I'm going to go to South America. I don't know when, don't know how, don't know by myself or whatever. But just to have that little seed of faith. And exactly. the Lord does that for us. I love it when he does that. And you just wait and see how he's going to, bring it to fruition. Yes. It's a mystery. That's right. So that's part one of Ruthie Burt Cornwall. And um, she, her first husband was George Burt. So you know you're in for a story. So come back <laughs> next week to hear part two. See you then. Or hear you then. No, you'll hear me then. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Robin Jones-Gunn. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Robin on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Robin Jones-Gunn.